0: Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Rob Pickles, here with my co-host, Trevor Connor. If you're an endurance sports athlete, chances are you've had an event where you had to scale back your ambitions or even pull out due to GI issues. It's happened to all of us. For me, it was at the Belgian Waffle Ride in San Diego. But for Grand Tour riders like Brent Bookwalter, who had to pull out of the Giro d'Italia, it can be the only reason they've ever quit a Grand Tour. For those of us who suffer from these issues, we're willing to try almost anything. Get up at 4 a.m. to have breakfast well before an event, eat a low FODMAP diet for the week leading up to a race, pop antacids, and experiment with race food after race food until we find one that works with our stomachs. But the important question is, what causes your digestive issues and what's been proven to help? That's where our guest today comes in. Registered dietitian and researcher Dr. Patrick Wilson wrote the book on it, literally. The Athlete's Gut has helped numerous endurance sports athletes keep their digestion under control during their events. At the core of the conversation is identifying what causes your digestive issues because it can be unique to every athlete and the solution depends on the cause. Along with Dr. Wilson, we talk with recently retired pro cyclist Brent Bookwalter who now dedicates his time to the Pro Cyclist Foundation, an organization that provides mental support for athletes. We also hear from exercise physiologist Jared Berg and current pro Tom Squinch from Trek-Segafredo about how he addresses gut problems. So grab your favorite easily digestible food and let's make you fast.
1: Listeners, we just announced a major partnership with USA Cycling, Cycling's national governing body. Fast Talk Labs is now the coaching, education, and development partner of USA Cycling. We help coaches become better, happier, and more successful. Now, all active,
0: licensed USA Cycling coaches can join Fast Talk Laboratories for free. USA Cycling coaches get access to our full library of pathways and sports science content. Plus, they can follow Coach Joe Friel's new online education
1: experience, The Craft of Coaching. You're a USA Cycling coach. Visit FastTalkLabs.com to get started today. Dr. Wilson, welcome to the show. So we are talking about a subject that seems to be near and dear to your heart. You even wrote the book, The Athlete's Gut. So this is something that you've really focused on.
2: For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've been interested in a while enough so as you mentioned that I decided to kind of write a whole book on it. You know, it's it's an issue, GI issues, gut issues are problems that pretty much every endurance athlete at some point or another is going to encounter. Unfortunately, some it's it's almost every training session or every competition, you know, fortunately for most, it's more of a relative occurrence or somewhat of a rarity that it's bad enough to impact their performance. But, you know, like I said, at any point in time, I mean, it's a chance that an athlete's going to experience a problem And over long periods of time, you know, months of training. It's likely that, you know, at some point there's going to be an issue where it's bad enough to interfere with either, you know, their ability to carry out the training or in competition settings, their ability to perform as well as they want, or even sometimes finish a race. You know, it's bad enough that they have to drop out.
0: Yeah. So, Dr. Wilson, I feel like a lot of people find their way into research because of issues that you know, they're interested personally. I know that's how I ended up in sports science. I also know that I have a lot of sort of gut things that go on when I'm out there riding. Was it the same for you? How did you end up in this field of, of gut health? Uh, was it through personal experience or just sort of through education and schooling? How did you end up here?
2: You know, it was kind of a little bit more happenstance than that. I mean, I've certainly had my fair share of functional gut issues. I mean, I've had stuff that probably resembles IBS, dyspepsia, that sort of thing, I've gone to a gastroenterologist multiple times. And it's not been bad enough to the point where it's, I think, been a major impediment in my life, or it really interfered with my training a whole lot. But in terms of how I got into it from a research perspective, it was largely when I was doing my PhD, I was researching kind of multiple transportable carbohydrates, You know, the idea that you mix glucose and fructose into a supplement or a beverage, and it's going to help enhance performance, increase carbohydrate burning, and also reduce potentially GI side effects from supplementation. So I'd gotten into that area of research, and I was carrying out a study with runners because pretty much all the studies at that point have been done in cyclists, and it's just a lot easier to feed cyclists a high rate of carbohydrate, and it had not really been shown to work in runners to use a mixture of glucose and fructose. And That's kind of where it started. You know, GI symptoms were something that I evaluated and just kind of got interested in that aspect of it from that project. And from there, it kind of just ended up showing up in other areas of my work. And it's, you know, kind of hard to go back and track exactly what the through line was for all of it. But, you know, I just progressively got more interested in it because it's so common for endurance athletes to experience problems. You know, it's one of those things that sometimes people don't like to mention or they feel uncomfortable talking about but it's so problematic for so many endurance athletes so let's
1: go there and and you're right it is a problem that a lot of endurance athletes experience so what are some of the causes what are some of the reasons that this is so common in endurance
2: athletes yeah it really ranges a lot and that's i think what makes it interesting is that you know there's a variety of different symptoms an athlete can experience and for each of those symptoms there can be similar causes, or they can be completely different causes. I mean, a good example is like bloating. You know, that's really kind of a distension of the abdomen or the gut from a buildup of gas. And that oftentimes is going to be triggered by, you know, eating certain types of foods that result in fermentation of carbohydrate and the production of gas. That's a very specific cause. Whereas, you know, something like nausea or uh, maybe something like reflux, are going to have other causes. You know, eating too much fatty food before you work out could cause reflux. Nausea could be caused by dehydration. It could be caused by just very high intensity of exercise. So that I think that's what really makes it sometimes challenging to figure out is all these different symptoms can have different causes. So I, I kind of advocate the approach of trying to document the specific symptoms that an athlete is experiencing when they're experiencing them what the context is and then from there trying to pin down what's the most likely cause in that scenario because you know ultimately there can be a lot of different causes for the gut problems that athletes experience
0: and that seems to be the crux of the situation right that it can be different for everyone and and maybe even for the same individual they have different responses in a slightly different situation I think that it's interesting that you point out trying to document exactly what's going on and and figure out what are the common threads that cause me to feel the way that I do. And I think that that's maybe something athletes should be doing more of, but it it seems difficult in the moment. What sort of things should they be documenting? What are the factors that come into this? Environmental conditions, intensity?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, it's going to be partly environmental. It's going to be potentially what the athlete's eating. Yes, Environment plays a big role in terms of whether or not someone's going to experience problems. You know, there's good research to show that if you exercise in a hot environment or human environment, that makes, honestly, most symptoms worse. So that's one of those examples of something that can make a variety of symptoms more prevalent or more severe. You know, you've got a, basically a redirection of blood flow away from the gut to the skin, You know, you're losing fluid through sweating. So you've got this kind of constellation of things going on that makes it just more probable everything with the gut is going to kind of shut down. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely one to pay attention to, obviously, be the environmental conditions. But in terms of what you might document otherwise, I think it depends on how often you're experiencing symptoms. And if it's relatively frequently, then maybe it's time to start really considering, you know, what exactly are you eating before these training sessions or competitions where you're having problems? And can you identify something as a causative agent in the foods that you're eating? Another big one I think sometimes is overlooked, and that's been more of a focus of my research in the last couple of years, is anxiety and stress. So how are you feeling in terms of your psychological state, particularly before competition? Are you feeling quite anxious? And does it seem like that anxiety is manifesting as GI problems? We've done... You know, at least three or four studies now that show consistently that anxiety is correlated with GI symptoms in endurance athletes. In particular, if it's the morning of competition and those symptoms are pretty prevalent and someone's experiencing anxiety, that could be one thing to take a look at as a target for intervention. So, yeah, it could be diet, it could be your psychological state, environmental conditions, medications. Are you taking NSAIDs? Is another example. Yeah, that's a, what really makes it kind of a tough nut to crack sometimes is there's just a lot of potential causes. And I guess if you're regularly experiencing symptoms, the more you can document the context around those problems, the better chances you have at identifying an underlying cause. If you just kind of take a, oh, you know, I'll think about it at the time. And then, you know, retrospectively, you go back and try to think of what you did. It's a lot less likely, I think, you're going to come up with a, you know, a real concrete explanation for what's going on
1: brent bookwalter suffered from gi problems throughout his professional career he shares with us both some of the causes he found and how he addressed them have you ever had any sort of gut issues and and what have you done about it if you have
3: oh we need a whole podcast for my gut history (laughs) um yeah gut issues for sure i think you'd be hard pressed to find a pro cyclist who's done grand tours that has never had any gut issues. Yeah, by by nature of the beast, these stage races that we do, the the fueling demands and the energy consumption and expenditure is just off the charts. And despite training for it, I did definitely developed a greater appreciation of training for that energy uh, consumption and expenditure in terms of eating and fueling and training as well as racing um, throughout my career. But yeah, there's only so much you can do. You know, you can never totally. Um, train for, predict that stress of the race, physically, emotionally, mentally, logistically, everything. So yeah, it's been definitely like I said, I think every every grand tour I did, there was definitely a period with just at the least, 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 you know, some acid reflux and some indigestion and some bloating. And and then yeah, more seriously, I had a I had a really difficult period. It would have been 2019. Yeah. Ultimately it forced me to Stopped the Giro. It was the first ever Grand Tour that I didn't finish, and I had some digestive gut issues. We never totally got to the bottom of it, but the the brief diagnosis was that I had a lot of inflammation. Didn't have stomach ulcers, but had a very irritated irritated stomach, and um, yeah, it was you know it's lights out if you can't process energy, and if you're having huge amounts of acid reflux, then it starts in- impairing your breathing as well. Do
1: you think looking back on it do you feel like oh boy I wish I had done x or I had done y and I think that would have fixed it or is it just these things just happen and sometimes there's nothing you can do about it
3: Yeah I think um you know just like the rest of our bodies you know we are the bodies are miraculous and we we can dish a lot out to them and they they keep coming back and they come back stronger and the body we heal but just like just like our lungs can get sick and just like our bones can get broken. You know, there's viruses and there's bacteria that gets in there and there's imbalances. And some of that is just, can be chalked up to sickness and, you know, vulnerable immune systems. And that dynamic where where more is being thrown at that system of the body than it can handle. So yeah, in some ways, I think there's going to be times when it's just unavoidable, but there are definitely... Definitely things we can do, I think uh, I think in general, just stress plays on the gut, stress in general, emotional stress, mental stress, um, and then obviously the physical stress. So I think having a way to navigate that, manage that, plan for it, anticipate it is really important. The other big thing I think that I learned throughout my career for sure is that when the when those energy demands are so high and the consumption and expenditure demands are so high that you really have to sort of like dumb down the flavors and and all the extra stuff in our diet, and just go for that the fuel, just the carbohydrate. Like I I remember being being a young rider on BMC and complaining that the team chef was never making anything with any flavor, and you know bringing like bringing sauces from home even and chucking Tabasco on everything and. Looking over at my Italian teammates and just doing olive oil and cheese on this massive plates of pasta, one after another after another, and I was repulsed and revolted by that, and very disgusted and critical. But yeah, fast forward 15 years later, and I was there was many a day when I was just yeah, the chef would make something, maybe even the opposite, something super delicious, and my stomach's you know maybe feeling a little unsettled, and you know I got to rec- kind of turn down or just maybe eat a little bit of the um, the real flavorful item, and then just. Go for the basic car bomb.
1: Keep it simple.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, that stress is a factor is a big one. You know, I certainly remember early in my cycling career when I used to not sleep well the night before my races because I'd be so stressed about them. I'd get up in the morning, and even though I'd read about the, you know, eat your typical breakfast, make sure you get enough food in your system, my gut would be doing such flips before the race that if I could get anything down, it would be nice. But I did a lot of races without eating beforehand just because I couldn't.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And we're actually trying to confirm your anecdote there is, is something that happens more widespread across the board. I mean, we've we've shown now consistently that anxiety correlates with symptoms, but now we're doing, we actually have, have collected data on about 150 endurance participants in races and asked them to report what they ate before enduring the races. And then they also rated how anxious they were before the race. And we're in the process of kind of analyzing the data now. And the hypothesis is essentially what you just said there, that athletes who are more anxious going into races are going to fuel less beforehand. And potentially during, I think it's probably more probable that, you know, pre-race nutrition is going to be affected. And we'll see if that is actually you know more consistently what we find across the board. But your anecdote you know, of kind of having gut problems because you're anxious and stressed about the race impacts feeling. I mean, that obviously has implications for, you know, potentially how somebody is going to be able to perform, particularly if it's obviously a really long event where feeling is, you know, obviously very critical. If it's a shorter race, you know, that's not such a big deal. But if it's getting into your, you know, two plus hour territory, then that becomes more problematic.
1: But I want to go back to something you brought up because I do think this is an important factor, this, this whole question of, of blood perfusion. Because, you know, first I'll tell you, I'm very interested in evolutionary biology. And, and something I've said on the show a few times is we weren't designed for doing competitive sports. Our bodies think when we're going really hard that we're probably running away from a lion or something really big. And that's a point when your body says, right now, I don't really care about digestion. I don't want to be digested myself. So blood gets shunted other places, gets shunted to your muscles, to your heart, basically to to help you do what you need to do. And it says, right now, sending blood to my gut is not the top priority. And that seems to be a, a big factor in these endurance sports where... If you're going hard and for extended periods of time that you point out, particularly in the heat, where you also need to to be able to sweat and get blood to the surface, you're not getting that blood flow to the gut and it's not going to function as well.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely studies that show uh, exercise intensity is correlated with the amount of or extent of reduction in gut blood flow. You know, the higher you get in intensity, the more impairment there is in that sort of flow to the visceral region of the body, to your intestines, to your visceral organs, and heat is going to exacerbate that. Like you said, you know, you've got only so much blood to go around. And if it's a hot environment, your brain, you know, knows that that's a priority to cool yourself off because honestly, overheating your brain is more of a threat to survival than I think probably what's going to happen if you reduce gut blood flow. I mean, there's potentially some negative implications there, but they're less dire than an overheated brain. So yeah, your body's kind of trying to figure out how to prioritize blood flow, and in particularly in prolonged, strenuous races in a hot environment, you know, it certainly is a part of the body that maybe isn't prioritized. Uh, yeah, and you know, historically, you know, humans may have been walking and jogging to track animals and hunting and things like that, where they obviously were giving sustained efforts for longer periods of time. But it's not like modern-day marathons, right? No, right. Nobody I, I, I can really think of probably in our ancestral past was running at 80% of their view to max or higher for two hours straight. I mean, it doesn't really seem plausible to me. So that's more of a modern sort of thing with humans that you know, our, our gut isn't really built to handle probably very well in a lot of cases. Uh, you get better with training. These impairments in gut blood flow and your ability to cool yourself more efficiently gets better with training and acclimatization. Uh, so those are a couple pieces, I think, of the puzzle is, is just knowing that over time, some of these things get better as you train more. And then also making sure you acclimatize to the environment appropriately.
1: It's really observant because I've actually read those studies about hunter-gatherers, observations of them. And when they were hunting, as you said, they weren't going hard. It was more kind of a, a walk-jog the only times they went hard were going in for that final kill or generally when they were running away from something
2: yeah so it's you know it's, it's it's a modern human invention endurance races and yeah it's just such a physiological stressor that it's very difficult for the body i think in some ways to balance all those demands right in terms of what's going on so it's pretty amazing that the body's able to really deal with that the way that it can but you know i don't think we really evolved for the purposes of high-level competition <laughs> specifically. Yeah. You know, that's Obviously, some people are more well-suited for that than others, but the gut is certainly an organ system that is going to be affected by the blood flow that it gets or the lack thereof in situations where it's not prioritized.
1: So what is the impact on the gut when you have this decreased blood flow, when you have this increase in heat shock proteins? What happens?
2: Yeah, that's uh, physiologically, you know, your gut, like any other organ system, needs oxygen and energy. So it's not necessarily the blood per se that's the problem or the lack of blood that's the problem. It's the lack of oxygen. It's the lack of nutrients being delivered. You get kind of a hypoxic environment in the intestinal cells, in the cells lining the gut, and they start to have, you know, dysfunction. They start to kind of loosen up the tight junctions that normally characterize the guts start to open up and that allows the passage of larger molecules that generally you don't want circulating in your bloodstream for example endotoxins or these kind of lipopolysaccharide substances that you find in bacteria kind of a marker of infiltration of things into the bloodstream that normally aren't present in high amounts And the consequence of that, for example, would be if there's a lot of that, you can have an inflammatory response, a systemic inflammatory response that maybe in a hot environment can actually contribute to or accelerate the rise in in core body temperature. And that could contribute to heat illness in in theory, at least. So that's one example of a potential consequence of having a reduction in gut blood flow is just letting stuff into the body that you generally don't want going into the body in large amounts. The other kind of obvious implication is if your intestinal cells are starved of oxygen or they're not getting as much as they need, the overall function of the gut is is going to be impaired. So motility and absorptive capacity might be impaired. So it's just not able to really do its job. And if, if you're not absorbing the stuff that you eat, it's just sitting there in your gut causing kind of havoc. So the two main, main consequences in my mind would be malabsorption and GI symptoms associated with that, and then the other more systemic inflammatory response that might contribute to heat illness, and then also maybe GI symptoms like nausea. You know, The hotter you get, the more inflammation going on in your body, the more likely you are to experience nausea and vomiting.
0: So if we look at this at the high level, as you mentioned, a hot environment, increased exercise intensity, stress, all of those things are going to lead to this decrease in oxygen that can cause this increase in permeability in the gut, as you mentioned, inflammatory responses occur in malabsorption. Do these processes tend to happen equally in both genders, in people of all ages? Can we make generalizations there? Are, are some groups more naturally able to deal with these stressors?
2: People who are trained, who have accustomized themselves to you know, regularly experiencing intense exercise are better able to Avoid kind of the exaggerated responses, for example. Gut blood flow at a given exercise intensity gets better with training. And the sort of permeability is probably less severe, you know, as you train. And then also, again, acclimatization to environment can make those things better as well. In terms of a gender sex effect, I don't know that that's been really shown or an age effect, if there is one of an age effect, it probably has more to do with the fact that as people get older, they tend to exercise at lower intensities. And in general, GI symptoms, gut distress tends to be negatively correlated with age, meaning the older you get, the less likely you are to experience symptoms during training and competition. It's not a super strong correlation, but it's a consistent correlation that's been seen across multiple studies. So yeah, I think the biggest factors in my mind would be training experience and then acclimatization to the environment. Beyond that, nutritional choices are certainly going to have some sort of impact. They will play a role, but acclimatization and training status are two big ones from my perspective.
1: As Dr. Wilson pointed out, not everyone is affected equally. Another issue can be sensitivities to foods and that can impact even the best trained athletes as Tom Scoinch is about to explain. So Tom's... I know this is something that is becoming increasingly important to athletes, at least they're paying attention to as the research is expanding and we're realizing the importance of the gut. Is gut health, your microbiome, something that you think about that you pay attention to? And if so, what do you do?
4: Yeah, that is a really good question. I uh, definitely have experienced both good microbiome in my gut and both bad. The first time actually I realized that it's a thing was 2013. So almost 10 years ago now, when I realized that I have a pretty solid sensitivity to gluten and my skin was just getting worse and my body weight was just Growing, and there was a lot of water weight I was carrying around for no particular reason until I found out that it was just uh, gluten was not uh, really something I could digest well. And once I cut that out, uh, I slimmed down quite a bit. My skin got way better. And since then, pretty much, I've been a big fan of using probiotics. I uh, probably have used mostly sound probiotics for quite a while, and uh, they make some really good product. And uh, I have been known also to brew my own kombucha here and there, uh, every once in a while. But right now the SCOBY is looking pretty weak, I gotta say.
1: So what I'm really interested in is you did bring up something that that I've seen a lot in the research. You know, even Dr. Eukendrup has done a couple studies on this. That when you have this decrease in in blood perfusion to the gut, and you get some damage and opening of the tight junctions, you get what what you talked about with this endotoxemia. So actually, one of Dr. Eukendrup's studies, he kind of compared it to to sepsis, which is the same effect. It's an opening of the the gut and allowing gram-negative bacteria, all these toxins into the systems, and extreme sepsis can kill you. But in sports, you're not obviously getting that extreme. But I've seen studies that point out when you get this endotoxemia, that can actually lead to symptoms of, of illness when you actually don't have A virus. So I've kind of, as I was getting ready for this recording, I kind of found that interesting that there are some things you're going to feel on the the bike or when you're in a race, when you're running, such as you you brought up bloating, you brought up nausea, but there might also be some effects that you're going to have from too much training, too much racing, where it can actually make you feel sick when, when it's actually just this dysfunction in the gut.
2: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, it's the actual symptoms of like nausea that accompany, you know, this endotoxemia is probably driven to a large extent by the inflammatory response. You know, there's studies outside of the context of exercise where you can mimic, you know, the symptoms of infection by injecting inflammatory compounds into people and, and just isolating that outside of actually them being infected. And you can get sort of those fever symptoms that they experience mm-hmm. With large doses of these inflammatory like cytokines, what we call them. So yeah, I think if someone is overtraining or training a lot, or if they've recently been sick and they haven't really allowed themselves enough time to really heal from that, and they jump back into training too aggressively, I think that is potentially a recipe for, in certain situations, leading to more GI problems, especially if it's you know, you've been sick, you haven't recovered well, and then you decide to go into to do a really long training effort in a hot environment, you know, that's a recipe for problems. Not only probably increasing your risk of having some sort of heat illness problem, but also maybe having exacerbation or worse you know, GI problems. So yeah, it's, it's certainly some other things you can look at contextually, like the training load. You know, whether someone's been ill recently and those sorts of things and uh, you know that could be in some cases contributing to GI symptoms. And that's a hard one to you know a hard one to figure out you know why, why somebody would actually be experiencing the symptoms. It, you'd have to look at the broader context, look at multiple variables at the same time and do some investigative work. but that's a tricky one, I think because it's you're not going to evaluate those cytokines in somebody's blood just day to day so you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. And it largely comes down to looking at self-reported symptoms and other things you can document. And that makes it challenging to figure out if that's contributing to the problem in, a, in the real world outside of the context of research.
1: That's really interesting. It's great that you brought that up because certainly that's what I was seeing in multiple of these studies is they did look at the, the cytokine levels and, and saw elevated TNF-alpha, elevated inflammatory IL-6. These are, these are two of the key cytokines that you see when people are in an inflammatory state.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting that studies do, uh, there have been some studies have shown a correlation between those cytokines and development of GI symptoms, particularly nausea is the one that I think most consistently see a correlation. So this is, you know, these are observational correlations, you know, the increase in those during a race correlate with the development of symptoms. Interestingly, the shorter studies, the experimental studies haven't found that as clearly, I think, in part because they just use shorter exercise protocols, potentially. I mean, it's, the studies where there's been a correlation, a lot of times it's been something like a, you know, a half iron man race or an iron man race or something like that. That's a whole different level of stress than, you know, exercising for an hour or two in the lab. And in those shorter studies, it there hasn't been this really clear, consistent systemic inflammation and cytokine levels correlate with GI symptoms in those more controlled contexts. So it's it's an interesting puzzle to try and figure out exactly what role they play. And I think it probably becomes more of an issue, again, when you're getting into really long, prolonged stuff, particularly in hot environments.
0: I think, Patrick, the last thing that you mentioned when we're talking about prolonged, where my mind goes is not just a prolonged event. And I definitely understand how the observational studies that use these really grueling and arduous endurance events can maybe elicit a different response than a researcher trying to uh, exercise somebody in a lab. Just a very different situation. But what I'm wondering is when we talk about cytokines, when we talk about inflammation, when we talk about these changes that we're seeing in the gut, is this related just to the event itself? And then tomorrow when you're sitting on the couch with your legs up, everything goes back to normal? Or do we see this increase in potentially these changes, the increased permeability that we discussed before, does that continue for one, three, five days, months after?
2: In healthy trained individuals who are exercising a lot, who you know don't have metabolic diseases, who don't have diagnosed gastrointestinal conditions. Generally, these are pretty transient changes. I mean, the extent of how long they last is going to depend you know, on the extreme nature or the nature of the event in terms of its intensity and duration. But for the most part, these are pretty transient changes that within a day Or two, largely, you know, those cytokine levels are going to come back down to, you know, relative normal. There, I guess, could be some circumstances where maybe you're doing like a multi-day event or you are going through a very heavy training period and you're you're maybe getting into the overtraining territory where, I guess, theoretically, you could see see some more persistent elevations in these cytokines in systemic inflammation. But for the most part, they're relatively transient. So your body does recover pretty quickly from these types of exposures. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that for the most part, the body's pretty resilient, does recover fairly quickly, and increases in GI permeability are typically transient, with the exception of, again, maybe people who have a diagnosed GI condition. Maybe they have uncontrolled celiac disease or Crohn's disease or something of that nature.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a really interesting point. And it led to my next question here, which is in those people who have the diagnosed issues, it's important previously that you pointed out everything we're talking about is in an otherwise healthy person. But for people that have a known GI issue, are they more likely to experience nausea, bloating, all of these negative symptoms that we're talking about?
2: With exercise, we don't know. There are just few, few, few studies on GI symptoms in the context of exercise in individuals who have diagnosed conditions like celiac or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. I mean, even IBS, which is incredibly common, there's really not a lot of research on the interactions of exercise underlying systemic inflammation and GI symptoms. So scientifically, I don't really have a good answer for you there because there just aren't studies to pull from in theory there could be more concern that because of you know the possible you know micro damage that is consistently happening in that person's gut because of a disease process they are more susceptible to you know things like systemic inflammation with exercise or heat illness or something like that but that's just kind of a speculative guess
1: so I'm going to throw in a, a bit of a roundabout way, but this goes back to, to some of my master's um, research. There is a lot of evidence that athletes tend to have a, a more healthy microflora. They have a greater diversity. And there's certainly been plenty of research showing that greater diversity seems to help with a lot of these GI problems, such as Crohn's, such as IBS. And there's been actually a fair amount of research on supplementing with probiotics to help with those conditions. So as you said, I haven't seen any direct research, but there is a, a potential pathway here.
2: Yeah. The the gut microbiota or microbiome, depending on how you, you know, define it, you know, you've got on average, I think the calculations projections are roughly, you know, 35 to 40 trillion bacteria residing in your, you know, your large intestine. So it's this huge community of microbes that are impacting your health. So we know that if you completely remove the microbiota from an animal, you know, you raise a mouse, a mouse is born in a germ-free environment that it definitely causes, you know, physiological and physical changes that impact health. Now, how do we study that in human? Obviously, we can't raise people in germ-free environments in an ethical manner, so we end up doing a couple of things. We will, you know, observationally test their microbiome usually through stool analysis and correlate that with what they're eating, how much they exercise, that sort of approach. There's the probiotic approach, which you mentioned, trying to kind of manipulate the gut microbiota. You know, there's also these studies that have actually done like fecal transplants, but that's been more in clinical populations. It's a difficult thing to study, but you are right that uh, there's disturbances in the microbiome in a lot of individuals who have issues with GI illnesses. So whether they have Crohn's or IBS or ulcerative colitis, those types of things, you tend to see sort of disturbances or... Changes in the patterns of their microbiome that would suggest that potentially, if you were able to favorably manipulate their gut microbiota to more match somebody who's quote unquote healthy, that, that could contribute to some improvements in their symptoms. You know, in athletes specifically, probiotics are a mixed bag. I would say that there's been a handful of studies that have shown improvements in symptoms, others that have shown no, no improvement. One or two that I've suggested even an increase in the frequency or severity of kind of mild GI symptoms like flatulence and gas and that sort of thing. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's a mixed bag with probiotics in terms of whether or not they are helpful for improving symptoms. So, you know, bloating, fullness, reflux, nausea, that sort of thing. I think the reason is, is because there's just so many choices in terms of how you can study it, you know, what species and strain, what dosage, what's the delivery mechanism, There's just an infinite number of variables that makes it really challenging to generalize about probiotics, and I think that makes it hard to apply them in kind of the real world in an evidence-based way.
4: Well, it's a really
1: hard thing to study that's actually my one of my thesis advisors she studied the the microbiome and i remember sitting in on on her her research meetings and she was always just putting up these giant heat maps because there's so many different varieties of bacteria that you, as you said you you have to look at the whole picture you just can't look at one
2: you're right that you know that people who are trained in exercise they do have tend to have more diversity in their in their microbiome. So that is a point that you brought up that is actually fairly consistent in the literature that I've seen. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, people who are sedentary, maybe who have obesity, tend to have less diversity in terms of the number of species that inhabit their, their gut. So that, that's an interesting yeah. observation that there tends to be kind of a correlation between training or exercise, metabolic health, and then just the diversity, the number of species that you can basically identify within somebody's microbiota.
0: Hey, listeners, thanks to your support, Fast Talk Labs is growing. We have a lot of great projects going on, including our USA Cycling Partnership, producing the craft of coaching, and getting even more content out to our subscribers. To achieve this, we're looking to hire for three positions— The first is an experienced content manager who can help drive all of our projects forward. The second is a social media and audience development coordinator who can really engage with our audience on a daily basis. And last, but definitely not least, is a marketing coordinator who understands the endurance sports community. If you or someone you know wants to join the Fast Talk Labs team in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Check out our website at fasttalklabs.com for more information.
1: Now, interestingly, Rob, going back to your question of can some of these effects be long-lasting? Well, we're on the, the topic of the, the bacteria. There is some research showing that when athletes are overtrained, it actually will cause a change in their their microbiome and promote certain inflammatory bacteria. And here I'll, I'll list them just because you can laugh at my horrible pronunciation. But there's so an increase in phyla tenercutes and proteobacteria, which I'm sure I just butchered both, even though that second one should be pretty easy but those are both inflammatory and do seem to increase permeability.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's definitely going to be an area of growing research in the next 5 to 10 years. I mean, there's already a, probably a couple of dozen studies that have in some way or another assessed the microbiome of of athletes and, you know, looked at correlations with diets, how it might change with training, how it might change with overtraining. There was an interesting study a couple of years ago that came out where they actually manipulated the microbiome of of mice. Uh, They essentially introduced uh, species of of bacteria, Vianella, into these mice and then had them exercise on this, you know, basically treadmill and found that uh, manipulating their microbiome like that actually led to longer running times in the mice. And to pair that with human data, they showed that after completion of endurance events like marathons, the sort of presence of that the bacteria increased after the marathon, so that there was kind of a change that reflected potentially, you know, what's going on with the gut during exercise, like a, a marathon. The theory might be that it, it's involved in processing and metabolizing lactate and short-chain fatty acids that might be related to performance. Now, I've been actually seen a study that has transferred that to humans to show that it directly improves performance. But it got a lot of press a couple of years ago kind of suggesting that there are strains or species of bacteria that might have direct performance implications. Uh, It's yet to really be shown in actual athletes that manipulating bacteria that way can improve performance. But I think that's where in the next probably three to five years, you're going to see some research coming out trying to, you know, manipulate the microbiome through supplementation or other means as a way to directly improve performance.
1: That's really interesting. Going to look forward to seeing some of that research.
2: Blood doping and it's, you know, stool doping is kind of probably where uh, <laughs> okay. I go next. One is self
0: limiting over the other one, perhaps. But I, I do think that we see that oftentimes, right? In, in supplements, kind of as you're saying here, on paper, it works. And maybe even a very controlled study when you're looking at one part of the pathway, it makes a difference. But when you take that to the entire human organism and you look for performance changes, it, it, it's not necessarily there. And I think yeah. that people need to understand that it, there's not necessarily a panacea that might work well in a petri dish, but you put it in a person yeah. and it's a different situation.
2: Yeah, that's a great point. And that relates back to that study is that you know they should, saw this improvement in performance in these mice by introducing this uh, Vianella bacteria. But the athletes in the study that they looked at, the human athletes, already had a high abundance of that particular bacteria. So uh, it seems dubious to me that finding people who are already really fit, who are really well-trained... And adding in more of this particular bacteria that they probably have, already have a relatively large amount of, uh, it, it seems unlikely to me that that's going to confer a very large improvement performance. But we'll see. You know, yeah. I'm sure there'll be more studies coming out in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah, and I'm also going to point out, I, I read a study last night that scared me a little bit that talked about designer probiotics, where they genetically manipulate the bacteria to either make them more effective or more resistant to the, the toxic environment in your gut. And all that just sounded... Uh, a little scary to me, not something that we should be experimenting with. It takes GMO to the next level. Yes.
0: Ironically, you guys are, are kind of making me feel a little bad about myself because I'm actively negatively manipulating my gut microbiome because I actually have to take oral vancomycin three times a day for an autoimmune issue I have. And so this topic when we begin talking about probiotics and the microbiome, it, it's just so funny to me because I'm literally taking antibiotics constantly, every single day of my life. So I'm just in a totally different situation.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, of course. You know, there's situations where you know you you have to take antibiotics and even though there might be concerns about what it might do to your microbiome, I mean, you know, the, the alternative is not really an option either. So, that's an interesting point and you know reminder that there's situations where, you know, looking at the microbiome isn't the end all be all because we're still just really in the infancy of understanding it. And um, I think the marketing to a large degree is well ahead of where the science probably is in, in most cases.
0: Dr. Wilson, we've gone through the different environmental conditions. We've talked about all these negative consequences that people have, but is there actionable information that people can use in in their daily training, in their events? How do we prevent all of these things from happening so that people have the best performance they can and they're as comfortable as possible when they do it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's uh, multiple approaches or avenues you can take to kind of dealing with these issues. And it ranges from nutritional to medication, to supplementation, to psychological interventions. So again, it goes back to what do you think are the underlying origins of your problems? And that's step one. You want to try your best to figure out what you think is actually the underlying cause. Because if if you don't really understand what the root is of the problem, you know, just throwing the kitchen sink at it isn't necessarily going to be an effective way to deal with it or prevent the problem in the first place. So... As an example if you're dealing with fueling issues and whenever you try and fuel during your you know your ultra or your ironman or something like that and just you're trying to hit a high target of carbohydrate intake and it's just not working for you you know you can potentially take a look at either training the gut or you can look at the actual foods or supplements you're using maybe you made a mistake and you're picking something that Has all glucose in it, and you're not using a mix of sugars as an example, or maybe you're just overdoing it in general, and maybe you just you're not the person who can tolerate a high rate, and you need to tailor it back for you as an individual, because you're you're just the person who doesn't handle you know 90 grams an hour. So yeah, I think there's there's lots of actionable information you can utilize and implement. It just depends on what the source of the problem is. I think again that is the major point. I think that athletes and understand is you want to try and figure out what's going on underneath.
1: Exercise physiologist Jared Berg has been studying carbohydrate absorption and briefly talked with us about the impact carbohydrates have on our gut and how we can train our tolerance. Let's hear what he has to say.
5: It's hard to pinpoint exactly what can be causing that for for certain athletes. A lot goes into basically how we move the food stuff that we eat, you know, through our Stomach and into our uh, into our small intestines and eventually our large intestines and such. But the really like, kind of like simple things that can cause the bloating and such would be you know foods that sort of slow down absorption can certainly um, cause that. So if like you know obviously if you're eating like a you know a bean and rice burrito within an hour of a workout, right? Th- those those foods can take on you know. You know, a lot of water, and then those carbohydrates can really expand in the gut, and you know, cause some uh, some discomfort. And you're going to have a situation where you know you're not able to. uh, You're basically like your your gut is holding on to that food, and, and then when you're working out, you're sort of pulling blood away from the gut, and so in trying to get it to the working muscles. And so then this is kind of sitting there and getting some discomfort. And so you know. Same thing. It's like if somebody were to have a real heavy sort of starchy, you know, kind of like you know, maybe it's even like pasta and stuff like that. And they just don't they don't metabolize sort of you know gluten as well or something like that. That that can um, you know even though they're they're not gluten intolerant or or celiacs, they're still just that kind of thing can slow down absorption too. And so I would say the biggest thing, I mean, and this is something I everyone's heard forever, we have to practice and understand what our what our guts can tolerate, and then also understand that our guts are somewhat trainable. We can introduce foods and try to try to um, challenge our guts a little bit and see if we can get them to get our get, you know get our GI tract to pull in carbohydrates a little bit a little bit better. Um, and, and from a variety of sources. But I would say, um, you know, I talk about a variety of sources and trying to pull. You know, we have different different transporters that pull in different glucose or basically carbohydrate molecules, glucose or fructose, fructose. um, And so there are different transporters that pull in. So if we could, you know, with our, with our meals, try to, um, try to engage, you know, all the transporters, you know, transporters, we try to pull in. So pull in a little bit of fructose and then, but focusing more on the uh, complex carbohydrate or that more glucose based. So that way we get sort of, um, multiple channels to pull in the, the carbohydrates that we'll that we'll need to use for in our workout i think that's a good a good target so yeah it might be something like have, have if you have oatmeal have oatmeal plus um a little bit of berries with that you know just to kind of like just to really you know top off the, the liver glycogen storage and also the to pull in to get the, the muscle glycogen um topped off through the um, more complex and you know glucose-based carbohydrates i mean then we can obviously go into like uh, training, have nutrition, nutrition while you're, while you're working out. And I mean, the same thing goes with that. Is like, you want to keep a pretty balanced. Do you want, you want to, you know, have that glucose and then that um, fructose-based carbohydrate source um, more heavier on that glucose um, size, which also can be, um, you know, the If that's a fine, that's just some um, a little different uh, source of getting our glucose at a little different um, sort of phase and the metabolism. But those different sources can allow us to pull in that during training nutrition a little more efficiently too.
0: If we talk about training the gut, because you mentioned that, is there a specific protocol? Is it just involving eating as much as you can during training so you're used to it in the competition? What do you recommend?
2: The few studies that have done this and who have shown some improvements with it, generally what they've done is they've kind of had individuals during their training sessions for a couple of weeks, just practice ingesting a large amount of carbohydrates, you know, maybe for an hour at a time. And, you know, that that would be, you know, 60 to 90 grams an hour is kind of a typical range. Whether you'd start out there depends on, you know, where you're currently fueling. I wouldn't necessarily advocate for immediately starting that high if you're not accustomed to it. But maybe gradually upping the intake until you get to that 60 to 90 gram per hour range, if that's if that's what you're trying to target in competition. Now, how long does it take for these adaptations to occur? I mean, I think at a minimum you're looking at a few training sessions as the bare minimum. I would probably suggest you know at least something on the order of five to ten within you know a month before your major competition, just to really. Be sure or feel comfortable that you're able to handle what you're planning to do in the actual event.
1: A quick side point here: we did a actual whole episode with Doctor Eukendrup, who's really known for this idea of training the gut, and that was episode 83. For anybody who wants to to really dive into that, because obviously we won't be able to go as deep on on that subject in this episode.
2: Yeah, and he's he's definitely written a lot about that particular topic. He's written a lot about the multiple transportable carbohydrates. Obviously, he's a you know world known expert in sport nutrition. So. Definitely, you know, the stuff that he says about gut training is is something you can certainly depend on and find to be credible.
0: Yes. So knowing that we have that sort of in-depth guide that people can look at, if we do switch over to the multiple transportable carbohydrates, you mentioned a, a mix. Is there a mix that seems to work for everyone? Is, is this individual or, or should somebody be having a certain ratio of glucose and, and
2: fructose? Usually the ratio is anywhere from 50-50 to maybe 2 to 1. So 50-50 glucose fructose or 2 to 1 would be, you know, glucose to fructose. You know, the studies that have looked at it, the, I guess the higher you go, maybe the closer to a 50-50 mix you want because, you know, each of those, you know, the doors, the transporters in the intestines that are responsible for absorbing both of those sugars kind of have a max limit they can handle and it's probably, you know, 50 to 60 grams an hour for each of them in that sort of range. So if you're pushing 90 to 100 grams an hour, you probably want roughly an equal mix of glucose and fructose. If you're pushing 60 or 70 grams an hour, you're probably fine with a, you know, a 2 to 1 ratio or something like that. But it is individual products, you know, vary in terms of their content of glucose and fructose. Unfortunately, it's not like it's listed on the label you know, it's not on the nutrition facts panel. So it's sometimes a little bit difficult to figure out actually what the ratio is. Uh, there's a study I did a part of my dissertation where we actually measured the glucose-fructose ratio of it was maybe like 80 foods or something like that that were used during a half Ironman. And we did publish those results. So some of those products you could look up in that particular paper. But that is sometimes a little bit challenging is that companies don't have to disclose that information if they don't want to. Some of them choose to do it because they incorporate that into their marketing, but others may, may not give you that information or it's not readily available.
0: So if you look at the newer high calorie sort of drink powders that are that are coming out there, right, that are really trying to get at that 100 grams an hour or more, I do think that they are leaning, you know, these are companies that are putting out a little bit more information about what's in there as opposed to maybe your normal athletic product. And mm-hmm. I have definitely seen a, a movement toward that one-to-one ratio. I'm interested, though, that you brought up a, a two-to-one or a one-to-one. Both of them could work, sort of depending on the event that you're doing. Why would someone want, say, more glucose in a mix as opposed to treating them equally?
2: I don't know that you necessarily would want more glucose. I mean, if, you, if you're eating a lower amount of carbohydrate, though, let's say 45 grams an hour, if you had to choose between glucose and fructose, generally speaking, glucose is going to be more readily, quickly usable. Or skeletal muscle. I mean, fructose does go undergo some processing in the gastrointestinal tract. Uh, a lot of it actually ends up as lactate. Some of it ends up as glucose before it's actually metabolized in the muscle. So I, I think if you're eating a lower amount of carbohydrates, the priority is generally glucose. But as you get again higher amounts, you are supplementing that with fructose. And as you get into you know like the hundred gram territory. Then you really want that equal mix because the the max limit for each of them is about you know 50 grams, maybe a little bit higher, depending on the person. But at lower amounts, I would say generally it's more well accepted that glucose would be the priority because of its you know just ability to be quickly used in the skeletal muscle. Yeah, some of the research that I
1: saw, and this might be outdated at this point, but they looked at the so glucose and fructose have different transporters, and it. Some of the research I read showed that you know our max rate of transporting glucose is about 60, maybe 70 grams per hour, where fructose is less. You're, you're talking more around 30, 25, 30. As you were just implying, the transport's also different. Glucose can go directly into the bloodstream and go to the muscles, where fructose actually has to go to the liver, where it's, it's processed by the liver. As you said, if you have a lot of it, it, it gets converted to lactate.
2: Yeah and then if you have too much fructose let's say you went all fructose and you're you're going a lower amount let's say it's 45 grams an hour and you just decided ingest something with fructose it's more problematic without the presence of glucose because there's something called fructose malabsorption that occurs in a significant number of people it's very variable in terms of what level of fructose that occurs at but some people are really sensitive some people are not but when fructose is all on its own everybody at some point if you give them enough fructose they're going to have fructose malabsorption But when you give it with glucose, it's absorbed better. It's absorbed more efficiently. So that's why I think, again, when you're just a lower amount, the priority is glucose because of the reasons we kind of went through. And then also, you don't want too much fructose because in the absence of glucose, it can actually cause problems, gastrointestinal problems.
1: So I have a a question for you because I've had this experience a few times. And unfortunately, I always think back to uh, 2012 when I was focusing on Tour of the Gila and was on one of the best fitnesses of my life. And unfortunately, I think I got a stomach bug. So I barely survived the first day. The second day, I'm like, oh, I'm doing better. I think I'm going to get through this race. and was feeling really positive until 20 miles before the finish, at which point I forgot about the race. Pulled over to the side of the road, ran into a field, and pretty sure I traumatized a cactus. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, basically, my, my I, I just started feeling really bloated, got really nauseous. And that's something, as you said, everybody's going to experience at some point or another when they're in an event, when they're in a race. So if you're feeling this, if this starts happening, is there anything you can do? Or is it just what I experience? You forget about the race and move on to the next event.
2: Yeah, I mean if it's that bad at that point, I mean it's it's hard to some extent to come back from that. I mean it, it shows up in you know in studies for example like the Western States Endurance Run, it's a very significant amount that have it severe enough that it impacts your performance. I think if there was like an easy, you know, fix to the problem to prevent those issues, it would be readily apparent um, either through research or through practical application that the athletes are trying themselves. But once you get to that point where you're ready to basically throw up or you got to pull over to the side of the road because, you know, things are about to come out of you. I mean, it's almost a little bit too late at that point. So again, that goes back to the idea that identifying the underlying causes beforehand and trying to solve them before it becomes an issue but even despite your bef- best efforts there's probably going to be some days where it just happens and you don't know why <laughs> I yeah. think that's part of the frustrating thing about gut problems is that sometimes you just you don't know why and it just does happen I mean ultra race directors will kind of say you know if we had an easy solution for nausea and vomiting you know we would have probably figured it out by now there's a reason still why they keep those uh, anti-nausea medications on hand at every race and why so many athletes still drop out, even though we're trying to educate them on it. It's just sometimes it does happen.
1: So it sounds like prevention is really your your best approach. And so I'm going to bring up something I see a lot whenever I, I travel with racers and, and stay in a hotel with them or stay in host housing. We always have one person who has to get up four hours before the race and eat their food because they say they, they can't eat within three hours of the race. Is there evidence of that? Is is that something that, that can help athletes if they just get it all in and digest it beforehand? Or are they setting themselves up for any sort of failure doing that?
2: I think if it's an athlete who knows that if they eat any closer to exercise, they, they might have kind of that brick in the stomach feeling, maybe because they're anxious, for example, then yeah, it could be beneficial to them to get up earlier to get that food in, give them more time digest it and to some extent what might be going on is if they're overly anxious that can slow emptying from the stomach and you know if you're eating two hours beforehand and it's a relatively sizable meal and then you're also going to feel during the race you're kind of experiencing maybe a backlog of things in part because of that anxiety that the athlete was experiencing before the race so i think in some cases sure it can be helpful to get up earlier and eat four hours beforehand I don't think that's necessary for every athlete by any means. Uh, There's also recommendations. Sometimes you see like to completely avoid fiber, fat, and protein, you know, before a race in the meal. I think that also depends a lot on the person and depends on the timing. I mean, to me, there's no reason to go overboard with restricting things like protein and fiber and fat necessarily if you're eating three or four hours before. I mean, that's a pretty long Mm -hmm. time for. Things to empty from your stomach. And if you go completely absent with those things, sometimes you can feel, you know, more hungry than you want to by the time the race starts. So I, I think it comes down to the situation and the athlete in terms of, you know, what they're experiencing, especially with, you know, pre-race nerves in terms of what might be the appropriate timing for them to eat. I also remember in your presentation, I
1: believe you talked about hypertonic beverages and avoiding FODMAPs.
2: Yeah, hypertonic beverages are actually fantastic sort of pre and post exercise because they are retained better in the body than just like drinking plain water. So hypertonic beverages, we mean things that have a high concentration of carbohydrate or electrolytes like sodium. And because of those high concentrations of solutes, they actually stay in the stomach a little bit longer. And it's more like a drip, drip, drip from the stomach into the small intestine. And it means it's a more gradual absorption of fluid. Into the bloodstream and that's potentially beneficial after exercise because it doesn't drop uh, or doesn't change your serum sodium and electrolyte levels as much if you drink plain water what that'll do is it'll dilute the sodium and other electrolytes in your blood to a larger degree your body senses that and says we got to make some urine because we're getting you know low blood sodium so before i well before exercise maybe a couple hours beforehand a few hours beforehand Post exercise, hypertonic fluids are a perfectly fine choice. During exercise, you know, they're staying in the stomach longer. So that's obviously problematic if you're trying to hit a certain target rate of fluid replacements and you're being relatively aggressive about it. You know, you don't want stuff just sitting in your stomach for obvious reasons. So I think hypertonic beverages, you know, they have their place. It's just you need to be careful about when you're consuming them and then in what volume. If you're Taking in a couple ounces of a hypertonic beverage during a race, not a big deal. But if you're relying on them as your primary fuel source or your fluid source, that's potentially more problematic. And then what about FODMAPs? Yeah. So those are fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. It just is just kind of jargon for short chain carbohydrates that some people don't absorb as efficiently. And because of that, when you don't absorb a carbohydrate, the end fate tends to be fermentation by bacteria. Uh, You also have water being pulled out into the gut because water is kind of attracted to solutes like carbohydrate molecules. So that can equal, you know, loose stools, bloating, gas, cramping. And some athletes have a very high intake of FODMAPs because a couple of the most common FODMAPs are lactose and uh, fructose. And those are found in obviously dairy products and then uh, not only fruits and vegetables for like the fructose, but in sports supplements. So if, if you have an athlete who has a really high intake of FODMAPs and they're the type of person that's kind of sensitive to those uh, sugars, then going on a, you know, low FODMAP diet, particularly maybe before like an important race, is something they, they might consider. You know, there's evidence that, you know, 24 hours, 48 hours is probably enough time for you to see some positive changes in, in GI symptoms. So it doesn't necessarily even have to be something you do all the time. Because FODMAPs are found in a lot of foods, and a true low FODMAP diet is actually pretty kind of difficult to follow because FODMAPs are found in so many different foods. It's not very intuitive in terms of where you would find them.
1: Yeah. And I would say going on a permanent low FODMAP diet, you're, you're eliminating a lot of foods that are actually quite healthy for you. But it sounds yeah. like if you're having digestive issues, it would it wouldn't be a bad thing to to try before an event or before a Saturday morning training race to see if it, it helps you.
2: Yeah, it fits in the same box as like maybe limiting fiber intake potentially for some people for a couple of days beforehand, or you know carbohydrate loading is obviously kind of an acute intervention that you apply for a few days. As you mentioned, restricting fruit and vegetables from your diet, reducing these fermentable. Carbohydrates might actually not be very good for your long term health in some ways, particularly your gut health, the microbiome. So, I wouldn't necessarily advocate for doing it all the time unless you're under the supervision of some sort of medical provider.
0: So, we're having this conversation about real food outside of an event or competition. How do you feel about introducing real food? And I, this was a big thing in the cycling world a few years back that. You know, uh, your drink should be your hydration and that your fuel should be from real food that you're eating out of your pocket. Do you have an opinion on, um, on this specifically as it comes to a GI distress in, in individuals? Is a banana better than an energy gel?
2: No, I don't think inherently there's necessarily a difference between real food and supplements. I think both kind of camps, the real food people and the supplement people will kind of articulate the advantages of each I think there are scenarios where one or the other maybe makes more sense. I think shorter endurance events probably makes more sense to go with something that's almost like pre digested, you know, that's a gel or something of that nature or a beverage, because a shorter event just inherently is higher intensity. And thus you may have more gut dysfunction or a harder time digesting or absorbing some of those things. So the more simplified or homogenized it is probably the better for some people. The longer you go, you know, into ultras and things like that, you're exercising inherently at a lower percentage of your view to max, and you're probably better able to maybe handle some of those things. You also have the time to chew them and you know get them down. Whereas in a marathon, you know, you see people just throwing the gel in, swallowing, throwing the beverage in and swallowing, and they, you don't necessarily want to take the time to thoroughly chew, you know, a kind bar or something like that. So, I think they both have their place. I think uh, more solid foods can be appropriate for longer events, particularly if someone's kind of just sick and tired of the gels and the supplements and they just want something you know that tastes like real food. that that's not necessarily a, a problem. My only caution would be there are studies that do suggest if you do not chew, Whole foods, like take nuts or granola or even cereal or something like that, if you don't chew and break it down enough and you swallow it, it takes longer for those things to empty from the stomach. Because one of the things that regulates stomach emptying is the size of the food particle and how kind of broken down it is. So if you're eating bar after bar of something that's more closely resembling real food and you're not chewing it thoroughly, you know, at least in theory, that could cause more problems.
0: So that gastric emptying concept is, or topic, is really interesting to me. Despite my background as a sprinter, the thing that I actually like to do are are really long adventure mountain bike rides. And it seems like no matter what, I know what I should be doing. I know what I should be eating. I know all of those things. But no matter what, when I'm multiple hours into this event, at some point, it seems like my gastric emptying, it it just slows down. And and anything Mm -hmm. I put in, it just seems like it's piling up in that moment in that situation am i too far gone is there anything that i can do at that point do i switch products do i slow down do i have more sodium you get so many different recommendations from so many different yeah. people
2: you know that's a really common observation and it's clear from other studies you know like again the western states endurance run or other 100 mile runs or triathlons that these symptoms become more more and more prevalent the longer you get into the event so clearly, it's it's something physiologically going on where the gut is just having a harder time processing stuff. It's probably the cumulative kind of stress that over hours and hours and hours of maybe partial reductions in, in blood flow, the physical stress of especially running where you're impacting the ground is causing maybe some microtrauma. To some extent, there's not a whole lot you can do about it besides adjust your feeling, either taking in less or changing up what it is to make it maybe again more simpler stuff that's easy to digest. If you had prior to that been consuming more, you know, quote unquote, real foods, uh, that could be a switch that you make. But by the point, you know, where you get where things are just sitting in your stomach like a brick, it's, you know, it's it's hard to at that point kind of reverse things. So if it's possible to delay that or extend it through prevention efforts, that would be optimal. But just to be completely honest, I think inevitably some people are going to have GI symptoms. During really long events. It's just, it's, you know, it's such a prevalent observation consistently across different um, sports that it, I think inherently there's some of that that's going to go on. And you might want to just kind of anticipate that that's probably going to happen and adjust your feeling accordingly.
1: I always tell my athletes if they're doing a, a long event, particularly a long, hard event in the heat, if you're going to eat more solid foods, do that towards the beginning. And as you get further and further into the race, that's where you, as you said, want to consume things that are already pre-digested. That's where you want to get into your gels or even just your drink mixes.
2: Yeah, I think that's a reasonable, reasonable recommendation. You know, it makes some good logical sense and uh, I don't see a lot of harm in that. So even if it's not like something that's been verified in controlled experiments, I think it's a logical, you know, reasonable recommendation that you made.
1: So Dr. Wilson, this has been a really fascinating conversation and, and thanks for all you've shared with us. So you're new to the show. We finish out every show with our take-homes. So you have one minute to summarize what you think is the most important point that you want the listeners to take from this episode. So with that, what is your main message?
2: Yeah, the main message would be if you're consistently experiencing gut problems with training and exercise and competition, you want to try and figure out what the root problem is. So starting to document what's happening before, during, and after you know these experiences, particularly the ones that are you know most significant for you. So that can include you know what you did nutritionally, what medications you might have taken beforehand, what the environmental conditions are, how you're feeling psychologically. Those would be some of the main ones to kind of kind of focus on and then take that information and uh, use some of the resources available, whether it's a podcast like this, or the scientific literature, or the book that I wrote, The Athlete's Gut, and try and you know, pinpoint what you think might be those causes in your particular case. And uh, then you got to try and do a little bit of trial and error to see what works best for you. There's no single solution to gut problems. It tends to be you try one thing at a time and see if it helps, and then uh, move on to the next thing if you don't get any relief. And it oftentimes takes Multiple tries and multiple attempts to really figure out what the problem might be. And just realize to some extent that this is an extremely common problem and uh, many athletes deal with it. And, uh, you know, the hope is to get some improvement and some relief, but realize that you, you may never get complete relief from some of these things during exercise. Rob, what's your one minute?
0: Yeah, I think that we and and by we that i think that means everyone right us our listeners everyone within this field oftentimes when we talk about performance we tie it to things like threshold like vo2 max like economy these hard numbers that we can really measure and improve upon maybe we talk about things like sports psychology and how that affects performance but something that perhaps we need to be talking and doing more study of are things like gut health and then the symptoms that occur. Because all of these things that we talked about today, they can undo a performance or they can at the very least make it a heck of a lot less enjoyable. And so I think that the points of trying to understand exactly what it is that's causing your issues. I love journaling, writing that stuff down, looking for the common thread between them, understanding is this a pre-event or a during event thing, and then trying to figure out what works for you so that you can have the best performance and experience that you can
1: is super important. So my take home is actually a bit of a tangent. Dr. Wilson, I think you covered the main point of the episode, and, and that was great. But I was really fascinated by, uh, as I said, almost a tangent as I was doing my research for this, which was looking at some of that, um, what happens to the, the epithelium of, of the gut, that opening of the tight junctions. It was fascinating to me because that's something I studied during my master's. And I was studying it looking at it in terms of disease states, its impact on autoimmune disease. So it was really surprising to read these studies about athletes. And you always think of endurance sports as, you know, this is great for your health. To, to see similar mechanisms and go, wait a minute, this, this is stuff I read in a disease state. So it's important to recognize that not everything that happens when we're, we're doing these sports that we love is good for us. That there are negative consequences as well. And this goes back to an episode that we just released recently about the importance of recovery. We need recovery, not just to let our bodies adapt a bit, because sometimes the sports that we love also do some damage and we need to let our bodies recover from that damage. Well, Dr. Wilson, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute joy.
2: Thank you again for the invite for letting me come on Fast Talk.
1: Absolute pleasure
0: having you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Patrick Wilson, Brent Bookwalter, Tom Swinch, Jared Berg, and Trevor Connor,
2: I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.